without much further ado, uh, I'm going to bring our, our speaker, Andrew Lakoff, uh, who is uh, an anthropologist at, at USC um, and um, is, is going to talk to us tonight about uh, how we became unprepared. Big round of applause for Andrew. The conversations at the interval take place a few times a month at the Long Now Foundation's bar, cafe, and museum venue, The Interval, in San Francisco. This podcast is brought to you by Stripe, a company that's working to build the economic infrastructure of the internet. They help people start internet businesses and accept online payments from customers all over the world. Uh, so first of all, I want to thank Michael and all the folks at The Interval for not only the invitation, but the tremendous work they do to, to organize, to put together, to get the speakers into shape for the presentation. So um, there's a lot behind what you guys uh, see each time you come here tonight. Um, as I, so, so I'm typically used to uh, lecturing to very tired undergraduates as a professor, and, and, and I, I came to an event here at the, the start of my blissful year at CASBIS. Um, and saw that, in fact, this was more of a you know, lively spoken word type of venue. And I, I really leapt at the chance to have, instead of having kind of um, bored students with hangovers in the audience in the morning to, to, to see an audience of people who had come here voluntarily and had cocktails in their hands. Um, I, as, I, as I spoke with Michael in preparation for this talk about how to, how to think about what to present, uh, he, he reminded me that these are fun, lively, events, um, I should think about something uh, you know, relaxing and enjoyable to talk about. So I decided to, to, to focus on you know, one aspect of my work, which is the possibility of future catastrophes. Um, no, but in, in all seriousness, this, the, the work that's being done here at The Interval and the Long Now Foundation on forms of temporality, on how to think about the, how to think about the unknown future is really apropos for the kinds of things I've been working on for the last few years, so I'm really delighted to have the chance to share this with you. Um, okay, let me start. So you've already, you all probably heard a statement, something along the, the lines of what you see at the bottom here, um, given typically by a public official uh, or, or, or a specialist. Um, we're overdue and we're underprepared. Um, it could be for a number of different things, a mega earthquake, uh, a cybersecurity attack crippling our life-sustaining infrastructure, um, uh, uh, a nuclear accident. Um, in this case, we have the Department of Health and Human Services secretary back in 2005 saying, we're, we're not prepared for the outbreak of a humanly transmissible severe strain of pandemic influenza. So what do all of these various kinds of potentially catastrophic events have in common? Um, first of all, in most cases, they have not occurred, or they're very rare. Um, secondly, their onset is foreseeable but not predictable. Um, thirdly, they're potentially calamitous, not only to um, individual lives, but also to economies and to social order. Uh, as I talk about these kinds of events, or at least the way we, we, we prepare for these kinds of events, I'm not going to try to get you to be more worried about them, even if perhaps we should be. Um, and I'm not going to advise you on how we can become more prepared. Rather, what I want to do is pose the question of how we came to think about the future in this particular way. Um, oh, the argument I want to make is that we have, a range of, we have a range of available ways to think about and act on the future. Uh, which particular threats we focus on and how we approach, it, how we approach them hinges on um, the tools that we use to make the future available to us in the present. Uh, as Michael mentioned, I'm an anthropologist, um, and my particular area of specialization is the anthropology of knowledge. So I'm interested not so much in the public imagination of future catastrophes or in mass cultural representations, but rather um, in often hidden or, or secret ways that experts and authorities plan for a, a future disaster. Um, by experts here, I mean actors who have a capacity to make authorized truth claims based on culturally sanctioned expertise. 
Um, on the left here is an image from the 1960s of a prestigious think tank, the RAND Corporation, that was composed of um, experts from fields like mathematics, political science, and economics, and they were typically charged with planning for the future, um, the future of war, but other kinds of futures as well. Uh, one of the most famous members of the RAND Corporation was the, the man here on the right-hand side, Herman Kahn. Um, he was a mathematician who eventually became famous for promoting the, the technique of scenario-based planning. Some of, some of you may have heard of him. I'll return to him toward the end of the talk. Um, but what I want to emphasize for the moment is just that these are uh, prestigious figures who have um, the capacity to tell us something about what the future holds. So let me just preview the argument that I want to make in the talk. Basically that during the period of the heyday of the Rand Corporation and a little bit beforehand, uh, a set of techniques and concepts were developed initially for dealing with the threat of nuclear war, and that these techniques and con concepts were gradually extended and applied to a range of other kinds of disasters, from natural disasters to potential terrorist attacks, eventually to pandemics. Um, and that you can think of these techniques together as a really systematic way of approaching the future. So what do I mean by tools for thinking about the future? Uh, I'll just give you a few examples. For, I already mentioned scenario-based exercises. These help us to imaginatively enact a dangerous future and also to generate knowledge about our current vulnerabilities in relationship to that future. Another technique is the sentinel device. These are devices that track the possible onset of a future catastrophic event, and they trigger pre-planned responses to that event. A third example of a technique of preparedness, stockpiles of essential supplies. These, this is one of the signature methods of preparing for a disaster that could strike at any time. The images here are all preparedness for public health disasters, which is the area that I've mainly worked on in the last few years, but they're really generic techniques that apply to a range of possible events. Um, so again, if you put these elements together, you have a preparedness system that not only describes possible future occurrences, but actually constitutes occurrences as events of a certain kind. I'll explain what I mean by that later. Okay, stepping back for a second, um, I'll put on my uh, kind of classical anthropological hat and say most societies, historically and cross-culturally, have some kind of officially sanctioned authority figures who have some kind of special access to what the future may hold. This image is from a very old and widespread way of dealing with an unknown and perilous future, divination and prophecy. It's an image of the Oracle of Delphi, who was often consulted by leaders in ancient Greece when they had to make major decisions uh, such as whether to go to war. The Oracle of Delphi, like other seers, had a capacity to interpret signs of a predetermined future, and these signs were otherwise unintelligible to the rest of us. Of course, as Oedipus proved, just because you've been told what your future holds does not mean you're going to be able to avoid it. Um, but the key point for our purposes here is that from the perspective of divination and prophecy, key future events are foreordained it's just that we don't have access to, to knowledge about them. But it's fair to say that oracles and prophets are not the culturally dominant authorities we have concerning the future today. It's hard, for example, to find a class in divination at most current <laughs> universities. Um, and this is at least in part because modern time is famously open-ended. The future is not yet determined. We tend to believe that our decisions in the present will shape what the future is going to become. Um, but we do have tools for thinking about how our present actions may relate to and shape this uncertain future. Let me start with an example that I think is highly significant in many areas of contemporary life. I, I'm going to call this an actuarial device. I'll explain why. So obviously it's a table, but it's also a device, and it assembles a large amount of data about the historical occurrence of certain kinds of events. And it uses this data to find regularities or patterns that can tell us about what is likely to happen next. This kind of device, this, this sort of table, was originally invented in the 17th century 
by English political economists. These were the, the, the earliest scientists who tried to apply economic thought to the polis as a whole. Um, people like John Grant and William Petty, who's quoted here, uh, put together what had been very scattered and heterogeneous bits of information on deaths, births, illnesses, um, and they found something striking when they assembled these all into a table and ordered them according to years. Um, and they found something that's, for reasons that will become obvious, very clear to us today, but was not known at the time. Even though at the register of individual or family experience, a given birth or death is a unique, singular, contingent event, if you map these collectively, they show really impressive regularities. Um, if you look at the entire population, you see this, roughly the same number of births and deaths happening every year in a given place. Um, and then interesting things were found by my little pointer. Um, if you look over on the right-hand side, things, you know, it's very constant that, and we all know this now, there's more males born than females each year. But it wasn't known until you assembled all this knowledge together. Um, so what, what was gradually being discovered that, was that while the future is open-ended, it's not determined, um, one can roughly forecast that it will be somewhat like the past, at least in these respects. Uh, and knowledge of these kinds of patterns was critical for the insurance industry, just emerging at that time. You can only begin to have an idea of what to charge for accident insurance or life insurance, or if you have some sense of how likely these, given, these, these events are to happen in a given year. Okay. Skipping ahead a couple of centuries. With the, cons with the consolidation of the modern nation-state in Europe in the 18th and 19th century, you see these kinds of devices, this form of calculation, become central to government policies in fields like public health. Uh, the term statistics arose at this time. As many of you will know, it means originally the science of the state. And it comes from the period when these European countries established bureaucratic agencies like census bureaus, whose task was to track life events in the population, such as birth, death, illness, rates of suicide, and so on. And again, it was found that these showed regularities um, and that its state policies could actually affect these rates. Um, so the, the kind of the early origins of what we now know as the welfare state. In this quotation from this British social reformer, William Farr, he's noting that, again, we can't say exactly what's going to happen to any given individual born in the year 1841 when he's writing, but there are these regularities like lifespan that allow us to make some fairly accurate demographic predictions. Given the number of people born in Europe as a whole in 1841, he says, we can surmise roughly how many are still going to be alive 80 years later in 1921. Moreover, if you look at this chart carefully, Farr is introducing another discovery that's quite important for our story. It turns out that life expectancy varies by place. If you're born in the rural, southern, relatively wealthy area of Surrey in England, your life is going to be longer than if you're born in one of the urban areas industrializing at the time, like London and Liverpool. Um, as you can see from the chart, it's particularly perilous to be an infant in Liverpool. So, so this kind of actuarial knowledge, these tables make it possible to calculate individual race sorry, individual risk based on social characteristics such as age, sex, location, and so on. Um, this image, which you see also over here, thanks to Otto, um, is what William Farr, the same uh, British social, re social reformer, called a uh, biometer, measure, uh, a device to measure life. Um, in particular here, what, what this device measured was the risk of contracting cholera in one of the major epidemics that hit London in 1832. Um, and according to Farr, your risk of contracting cholera if you lived in London in 1832 hinged on how high in the city you live. So it's a very uh, visual graphic representation of risk. The higher you are, the lower your risk is, according to Farr, based on his statistical calculations of contracting cholera. Now, he thought that this actually demonstrated his theory of the cause of cholera. People didn't yet know that cholera was uh, a bacteria. Um, that was transmitted via things like s exposure to sewage. Um, so he thought that um, cholera traveled through the air, through the miasma, and that you were less likely to, contact, to come into contact with this air the higher you were 
in London. Um, so if you can, you can see these numbers, if you're living at 300 feet, um, only seven out of every 10,000 people living at that, uh, that altitude died of cholera in the epidemic, but you know, if you're down in the neighborhood of uh, 40, 40, 50, uh, sorry, 40, 30, 20 feet, your risk of contracting it is much higher. So we now know that Farr was wrong in his theory of disease con causation, um, but the method he was developing of tracking risk and then targeting public health interventions based on this knowledge about risk has had a tremendous success, not only in public health, but throughout government policy. Um, so this invention of risk thinking can be seen as an event in thought. Anyone recognize my um, dapper philosopher here? Oh, it must not be the 1990s. Uh, so this is Michel Foucault, um, who, called these he, who called these moments of mutation in systems of knowledge the study of the genealogy of ideas. This technique of genealogy does not assume that there's a rational progress or a telos in the development of these kinds of ideas, but, or that there are hidden interests or ideologies that shape how new ideas arise. Rather, they emerge and extend themselves under fairly contingent historical circumstances. But once they've solidified, they become fairly automatic and unthought. Um, they're even a kind of trap um, for, in, in approaching a wide range of problems. The task of the genealogist, according to Foucault, is to reopen these ways of thinking for questioning. Okay, so today, just to continue on the theme of uh, this event and thought of the development of risk calculation, um, the way you justify vaccination policy is by demonstrating quantitatively that the benefits of vaccination outweigh its risks. This is just a historical sh chart showing that, uh, that smallpox risk declined over time in relationship to the uh, imposition of compulsory vaccination. But it's actually hard to think of, of any area of social policy that is not, at least to a certain extent, shaped by this way of calculating risk um, and managing it. Uh, you might think of environmental regulation, of drug testing, infrastructure development, urban planning, and so on. However, in recent years, over the last couple of decades, we've arguably entered a period in which this mode of calculating future events is no longer salient for a number of the threats we collectively face, at least in certain areas. We're faced with the possibility of catastrophic events that outstrip the technical capacities of risk management. In other words, the probability of these events cannot necessarily be calculated, in part because in many cases they've never, they've never occurred before. And their potential consequences are so great that they outstrip our means of mitigating them. So just as an example, um, thinking about the tsunami in Japan from several years ago, what was the quantitative risk that a tsunami would flood the Japanese coast and cause a nuclear meltdown? Was it possible when people were thinking about constructing this power plant to weigh this risk, risk against the energy benefits that would be conferred by its construction? One approach to the situation is to say that we should avoid taking actions that invite such catastrophes. Building nuclear power plants, creating new organisms through agricultural biotechnology, warming the globe by burning fossil fuels. This is often called the precautionary principle. It says our inability to definitively calculate future risk should not keep us from taking proactive intervention to stop the event from occurring. In Europe, it's a relatively common view in areas of ecological threat. Things like genetically modified organisms have been banned in many countries on the grounds that we don't yet know how catastrophic their release might be. In the United States, on the other hand, on the other hand this view is often derided by those who argue that there's no scientific evidence of the harm caused by genetically modified organisms. But this raises another question. How should experts, public officials, authorities approach a, a potential event whose occurrence cannot necessarily be 
avoided. For example, a pandemic of a novel strain of flu, a mass casualty terrorist attack, um, or a Category 5 hurricane striking a major city. One of the lessons for authorities in the wake of Hurricane Katrina was not only that we collectively are not prepared for such a disaster in the future, but also that citizens expect the government to demonstrate preparedness, to manage natural disasters and other catastrophic events competently. Um, so many of you may recall uh, Mike Brown, the, the infamous head of FEMA during Hurricane Katrina, who was castigated because he was a political appointee who had no qualifications for managing disasters. And what became clear to Bush administration officials and, and others was that um, that the president and those around him were going to be held accountable if another disaster occurred under their watch and there wasn't a good response to it. So you saw a couple of weeks later, this, what I found at the time, a really striking picture of President George W. Bush with the, the Secretary of Homeland Security at the time, David Chertoff, um, flying to a, a military facility, the U.S. Northern Command, to track the progress of Hurricane Rita, Rita as it hurtled toward Texas, um, demonstrating to the public, you know, we are getting prepared for this, we're watching this, we're monitoring this. But another striking thing about this and some of the discussions of preparedness that I noticed at the time was a real analogy made between preparedness for events like terrorist attacks and natural disasters, um, and even what seemed to me a very different kind of potential future event, uh, an avian influenza pandemic. Just a couple of months after the failed response to Katrina, uh, the Bush administration proposed the, the biggest public health investment in federal government history, a $7 billion plan to prepare for pandemic flu. Um, and it was, a, it was a bipartisan initiative. There was very little political disagreement around it. Um, on the grounds, as you see in this quotation from Senator Kennedy, um, we've been shown to, be, to have been unprepared for a prior disaster. We need to get prepared for this next oncoming one. Um, so at this point, uh, I had been looking into, uh, I can say more about this later, I had been looking into the, the emerging field of biosecurity and plans for dealing with emerging disease, and I became curious, I hadn't been thinking about natural disasters before, but I became curious, where did this way of thinking about future events come from? What was its history? What techniques were involved in measuring and improving a condition of preparedness? Uh, and I gradually came to think of the invention of preparedness as an event in thought analogous to the invention of risk thinking in the 19th century. Like risk calculation, it was the result of a, con of a contingent development in one area that soon spread to a range of other problem domains. So let me just quickly tell you about that history that I gradually came upon. Some of you may already know about this. Um, intensive governmental preparedness in the United States for an impending emergency began in the area of mobilization for war. Um, a little bit in preparation for the U.S. entry into World War I and much more systematically and intensively in the late 1930s and early 1940s in preparation for World War II. The idea behind it was that the entire nation, um, our economy and our population, would soon be in a total war. Uh, in such an event, it would be necessary for the government to be able to rapidly centralize and control the management of all the nation's resources for the purpose of creating an efficient war machine. This is an image from 1956, and I'll give you a little bit more detail in it from a second, but the, the, the point uh, in showing it is that such planning continued into the Cold War, and part of what... Um, government agencies such as the Office of Defense Mobilization were engaged in was thinking about what would be the structure of a future emergency government in the event of a total war. Um, and as you see in this plan, um, the wartime structure of the executive branch, the entire federal government would radically transform, um, and in a single agency, the Office of War Resources, would be in charge of managing all of the um, human and natural resources of the country toward, uh, toward developing an, an efficient and effective industrial mobilization apparatus. This is a kind of close-up of it, but you just see that um, agencies that had been called things like the, the, the Department of Health um, became War Health Administration, Department of Agriculture, the War Food Administration, and so on. Um, 
So the main point here is just that there were a lot of mainly hidden from public view efforts to think about and prepare for what kind of uh, capacities would be necessary in the event of a future nuclear attack. Um, so the other, another more famous thing that happened during the, during the Cold War as part of the history of preparedness was the adoption of uh, the technique of war games or, 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 or simulations from the world of the military to, uh, to public preparedness for a nuclear attack um, to simulate what a future attack would look like. And the goal of this was in part to get citizens galvanized and ready, um, but also to generate anticipatory knowledge of what kinds of vulnerabilities we had in the present that we were going to need to address to be ready for this future nuclear war. So for example, the Federal Civil Defense Administration learned where to place these packaged disaster hospitals, of which we had 2,500, um, that were stored in different parts of the country in relationship to where it was anticipated the Soviet Union would strike with its weapons. The famous problem for civil defense was that as much as the government tried to get people, get citizens to prepare for it, the more and more powerful thermonuclear bombs became, the less convinced citizens were that techniques like evacuation plans or bomb shelters were going to do any good uh, once this nuclear holocaust occurred. So there was broad disillusion among the public, but also eventually among government officials with the possibilities for civil defense. This is the context in the early 1960s in which Herman Kahn, the RAND uh, mathematician that I mentioned earlier, became famous for his advice to the public and to government officials to think about the unthinkable. He argued that the difference between the survival of some portion of the population in the wake of a future nuclear catastrophe uh, on the one hand, or the total annihilation of civilization, inhered in whether we had the courage and imagination today to plan in detail for our post-attack situation. Um, so he developed this technique of scenarios, which were not predictions or forecast of what was likely to happen, but rather what he thought of as imaginative devices that could provide insight into present preparations. So using this technique, Kahn argued that bomb shelters should be stocked with radiation dosimeters, devices to measure um, individual exposure to radiation, so that in, in a contaminated post-attack environment, citizens would eventually be willing to leave their bomb shelters and go outside and rebuild civilization. So just, you have to, the idea being just you have to think very carefully about what's going to unfold in the future. But if this system of thinking preparedness had relied on civil defense for its long-term sustenance, it would have fallen into decline by the 1960s and 1970s. Well, as I said, the public and government officials gradually became disillusioned with the possibility of preparing for nuclear calamity, local authorities took advantage of federal civil defense resources to plan for other kinds of disasters beginning in the 1960s, hurricanes, wildfires, um, earthquakes. Uh, so you had the founding of local offices of emergency management all around the country. And by the, by the 1960s, the Office of, of Defense Mobilization had become the Office of Emergency Planning. Uh, meanwhile, tools that were initially designed to, to help in nuclear preparedness, scenario-based exercises, early warning systems, stockpiles of emergency supplies, could now be a, applied to a range of potential events. By the late 1970s, this approach of emergency management was applied to still other possible events. Terrorist attacks beginning in the, 19, the early 70s, ecological accidents such as nuclear meltdowns. In 1979, the Federal Emergency Management Agency was founded according to the rubric of what was called all hazards preparedness, precisely this idea of preparing for a range of different kinds of events. Um, and FEMA was folded into the new Department of Homeland Security in 2002, right after the attacks of 9-11. Okay, let me um, close this part of the talk or um, link us, to, to, link, link us to, the, to the conversation period just with a, a quick discussion of what happens when these two ways of thinking about the future collide, come into tension. Uh, and I want to use the example of 
a simulated bioterrorist attack that initially took place, or that took place in 2001, June of 2001, just before the attacks of 9-11. A little bit of context. Over the 1990s, national security officials had, been, had become concerned that the Soviet Union had been stockpiling huge amounts of weaponized stop, smallpox uh, during the 1980s, and that with the decline of the Soviet Union, these stockpiles of weaponized smallpox had scattered possibly to rogue nations or terrorist groups, and that the US was woefully unprepared for the possibility of a smallpox attack. They began to wonder what would happen if the US was hit with such an attack. Since most of the US population did not have any immunity to smallpox, we had stopped vaccinating, um, we had stopped compulsory vaccination in the 1960s. In 2001, a group of public, official, public health experts and national security officials collaborated to create a scenario-based exercise, a public health war game called Dark Winter that simulated a bioterrorist attack on the US using the smallpox virus. The premise of the exercise was, if we can imaginatively enact this event, we can both learn about current gaps in response and we can also convince public officials of the seriousness of this threat so we can get some resources devoted to it. Um, the, re the results of the simulation, it was a, a three-day exercise held in Washington, D.C., the results were dire. The disease spread rapidly. It turned out that first responders were unwilling to help. There were not nearly enough doses of vaccine in stockpiles to immunize the public. There were not only massive numbers of casualties from the, from the outbreak, but civil unrest and government breakdown ensued. Uh, the role player who was playing the president in the exercise, the, a former senator from Georgia, Sam Nunn, was especially struck by the problem of vulnerable first responders, public health workers, uh, firemen, and so on, who, uh, according to the scenario, would be unwilling to respond because they themselves lacked immunity to smallpox. He and others argued that the US should immediately establish a policy of what they called pre-event smallpox vaccination of first responders, that is to immunize millions of public health and emergency workers in advance of any smallpox attack. The only problem with this program was that taking the vaccine itself entailed significant health risks. Smallpox vaccine is a weakened version of the smallpox virus, especially for those who are already immunocompromised. There were certain to be casualties from the government's vaccination program whether or not an actual smallpox attack occurred. The committee that advises the Centers for Disease Control on Vaccine Policy, um, which operates according to a rationality of risk-based calculation, refused to make a recommendation on the proposed program on the grounds that they could not make a technical risk assessment because while the risk of taking the vaccine was known, the risk of a smallpox attack was not known. There was no way to do a cost-benefit analysis. However, a year later, after the attacks of 9-11 and the anthrax letter, letters that followed, and in the midst of the lead-up to the Iraq War, Vice President Cheney's office, charged with thinking about the threat of bioterrorism, was convinced that this threat was dire and insisted that the CDC approve the program. Meanwhile, large numbers of smallpox vaccine doses were added to the strategic national stockpile of medical countermeasures. You may know there are several huge warehouses around the country that maintain stockpiles of uh, drugs and vaccines against a set of select pathogens. Um, now, this vac vaccination program turned out to be a fiasco. First responders were unwilling to volunteer for the program, and it was discontinued in 2003 after immunizing less than 3% of the envisioned 10 million vaccinees. One way to think about this is that there was an, an unresolvable tension between security authorities who were thinking in terms of preparedness and the health workers who could only be convinced through actuarial rationality, who did not see the benefits of taking the vaccine outweighing the risks. But it also points to a more general problem that preparedness efforts face. Since they must envision and plan for events that may or may not occur, it is typically hard for preparedness efforts to sustain attention and galvanize resources so long as the event does not happen. Consider the image of the strategic national stockpile, these warehouses full 
of drugs and countermeasures, now full of supplies of smallpox vaccine and Tamiflu that are expensive to maintain and may well never be used. Moreover, the credibility of these efforts is often undermined when it turns out that officials have been preparing for the wrong event. And we can talk about this more later, but there's a really interesting story uh, from 2008 in which the World Health Organization um, responded intensively to swine flu based on their preparations for a different strain of flu and were widely criticized for having overreacted. Um, so with that, uh, let, let's turn to our conversation. Thank you very much. All right, I'm, well, great. Um, so that last story is so incredible, and um, as is the stool. Um, <laughs> so so uh, let's let's dive into that again for for a quick second. Um, so so the the initial exercise takes place before 9/11, um, and then so how does the decision making? You know, from the the crisis, how does how does that affect it? Was it was it shelved? Was there momentum that this was being evaluated, or did it change after the event? Yeah, the timeline's really significant. So in June of two thousand and one, this scenario was held. It's, it turns out not to be initially very effective. The CDC won't approve the program, won't recommend the program. It looks like Congress won't apportion resources for it. Um, but then that fall, of course, a few months later, nine eleven happens. Um, Meanwhile, uh, briefings of the simulation are being um, circulated around among uh, congressmen and among members of the executive branch, uh, and it becomes more and more effective, and it becomes, it's made more plausible, of course, by the anthrax attacks that follow. So by 2002, uh, when the vice president's office again says to the CDC, take up this question of whether we should have a pre-event vaccination program, CDC basically um, recedes from doing its usual technical risk assessment admitting that they can't do it, but goes ahead and approves the program. Um, and they, they, they go ahead and introduce the, um, to wide publicity the smallpox vaccination program, but it's voluntary, um, and it massively fails. Yeah. It, it's, um, so, so I mean, one of the things you've, you've said is that what you're studying is our, uh, or, or you say this better than me, but, but the, but the uh, how, how we approach an unknowable future, and it's and that trajectory from the oracle through to these things. And it seems like um, when you get to that point with these first responders, there's another form of future prediction, which is a lottery. <laughs> that essentially some percentage of these people are going to die, and it's no longer just a, 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 a statistic in an actuary table. Now it's it's real human lives, even in a small percentage. Um, so so it's a remarkable thing. Yeah, actually, if I can just add one yeah, thing, please. I mean, what's actually critical here is that the, the vaccination program was voluntary. Of course, yeah. if they had, if they had forced the entire population of, of smallpox, of sorry, of, of health workers to take the vaccine, then you would you would have gotten a very different yeah. result, and that individual subjective sense of risk wouldn't have mattered as much. So say something more about how these ways of thinking about planning for the future, anticipating how it shapes, maybe narrow, it, it shapes the possibilities of, of how the future may play out or, or otherwise shapes the, the, the future. Because I know that's one of the things you're, you're interested yeah. in. I think the way I like to think about it is that you know, a given event occurs and it can be taken up in a variety of ways. Mm -hmm. um, you might think about the, the possibility of a hurricane. Um, it can be thought of in terms of uh, the strength of levies in terms of the vulnerability of certain social groups for those who live in poor areas. Um, and each of those ways of thinking about, uh, uh, about the threat implies different kinds of interventions. Mm -hmm. If you think about the threat in terms of preparedness, there are a specific set of tools that you put into place, these exercises, evacuation plans, and so on. It's not to say that one shouldn't, but one should certainly be aware of the decision one's making about which style of reasoning you're going to apply to the threat. Mm -hmm. and, and, it, and it seems like it, it, tell me if I'm summarizing this right, but it's like the the preparation thing. A lot of it comes from that World War II mobilization, the, the duck and cover, and and, and those other things. Um, and and then it, um, but then it comes to bureaucratic. So the, the implementation of of bureaucrats using a military kind of of strategy and thinking is is maybe one place where there, there starts to be a, a, a problem. Is is that? 
Is that fair to say? Yeah, well, I, you know, and I, I want to insist that I'm not condemning the spread of preparedness. Mm -hmm. Indeed, it's, it's essential. And as we saw mm -hmm. after Hurricane Katrina, it was, it, it was really a, a, a governmental pathology not to, to have appointed somebody incapable of doing preparedness to the head of this agency charged with it. Yeah. So, so by showing that its history is contingent and then has a set of assumptions, it's not to say that it's, it's bad or not worth doing, um, but rather that it takes us in certain directions and potentially not in others. And, and also to point to some of its problems. It, preparedness has to make some decisions about which things it's going to prepare for. Mm -hmm. Is it going to be a smallpox attack? Is it going to be avian influenza? Is it going to be climate change? And so on. We have a limited amount of resources for events that may or may not happen. Um, so you're focused on how experts in particular, and, and this is authorities, they're, they're, but, it, but it's, it, and it's going back to the oracle in, in the earliest, uh, it seems like through, throughout all there's, there's, because we're by and large here not the experts, but we're certainly uh, aware of, of future uncertainties. <laughs> it's, it's something that's, that's very uh, on, on everyone's minds right now. And it seems like in, in each of those models, um, there's kind of the, there's the expert and there's their audience, whether it's someone going to the Oracle to ask them something about the future, um, or whether it's the, um, the population of the U.S. being critical of the Bush administration's handling of, of mm -hmm. Katrina, et cetera. Um, so, and, so, so say anything about that, and then maybe we'll talk about the H1N1 story, because that's, that's something that I think has a sort of cycle of I don't know, is, is that, does, and how, I guess, with, with the focus of your study, what do we as people in the population, um, what, what can we learn from hearing more about how experts are handling these things? Well, I mean, I think, you know, probably in this audience, everybody's an expert in something, right? Um, and what, I mean, what's interesting about expertise, living in a, in a knowledge society, is that, you know, it's not that, that we as a collective leave everything to the experts, but that we've kind of divided up um, the world of social problems into specific kinds of expertise, and there's certain people who are authorized to speak about each of those. Um, so as audience members, you know, we're, we're typically, we're going to rely on folks from the CDC, for example, to tell us which health, public health risks are the most worrisome ones. Um, and I don't, I don't necessarily criticize that. I think, I do think we should become, we should be more aware of how those decisions are made and what kinds of assumptions underlie, underlie those. Um, for the purposes of, of critical analysis, really. Mm -hmm. um, so, so why don't we talk about the H1N1 story? And um, we're going to have mics around, so be thinking about your questions. We'd love to get some good dialogue going uh, and, and hear what you want to dig into more. But um, so, so talking about this 2008 uh, situation. Sure. So just to kind of take the story forward from smallpox, yeah. uh, some of you may recall the event uh, of the SARS outbreak in 2002. Now, this really alerted global health officials to the idea that there were these possible emerging pathogens that were untreatable, that were not yet known, um, and that could be really devastating, not only cause lots of illnesses, but massive economic damage as well. Um, right, around, right around that time, a new strain of avian flu was circulating, and avian flu, the issue with avian flu is that if you get it, um, you're actually very likely to die from it. It has about a 50 or 60 percent case fatality rate. The fortunate thing is you're only going to get it if you are very um, affectionate with a chicken that, that or a, a, a fowl that, that has the disease. Not as affectionate, but you're you know, in close proximity, very close proximity. So, so the real fear that public health experts had over in, in the period around that 2004, 2005, and, and, and onward was that flu, which, which which mutates quite easily, especially in these reservoirs um, uh, in which ducks and chickens and humans are living in close proximity, uh, would reassort or, or, or transform to become easily transmissible the way that seasonal flu is among humans. And if it maintained anything close to that kind of case fatality rate, remember that the 1918 flu had a, something like a 2% case fatality rate, and we're talking about 50%, this is gonna be a massive catastrophe, probably one of the greatest in human history. So all that is to say, Global health officials were on vigilant alert, using these tools of preparedness we've been talking about, scenario-based exercises, stockpiling Tamiflu, um, developing sentinel devices to track the onset of a possible humanly transmissible flu. Um, suddenly, in 
early 2008, reports came from Mexico, surprisingly, since they thought it was going to come from Asia, mm -hmm. of a new respiratory illness that was killing people in high rates. Um, the existing preparedness measures were very quickly triggered. Uh, countries in Europe and in the, and the United States had developed national mass vaccination campaigns. Um, and, and when yeah. you say triggered, there's, t tell us how, yeah, how that yeah. so system the, so, works. So, so all these, the wealthy countries had developed pandemic preparedness plans that involved things like ma mass vaccination programs. So that, and they had even reserved uh, enough vaccine for their populations, um, because of course these had to be reproduced rapidly once the strain was known. They produced enough vaccines for their, for their populations so that in the event of the detection of an outbreak, they could rapidly put into motion this vaccination campaign. So that was done at, by June. Within, within a couple of months, that was done. By July or August, it was actually known epidemiologically that the case fatality rate was not so serious. This was swine flu. This was not H5N1. So, it was, so, so in other words, they had been preparing for the wrong kind of flu. In Europe, countries had spent billions of euros on these vaccination programs, and five or ten, only five or ten percent of the population at best was taking the vaccine. So it all went to waste, and pretty soon the World Health Organization was accused of conflict of interest. Um, they were accused of being in cahoots with the pharmaceutical industry for having over, having exaggerated the threat, sounded a false alarm. Um, and I, I think that that was a red herring, really. What happened was that they were kind of trapped by the very system of thinking about the future that they put into place in response to a different threat. And then there's, as we go to the, the next, that, that there's a, sure that, that that sort of moves on and there's, they, they, they adjust there right. with, with, that, with that negative feedback from the audience, as it were, from the public. They adjust those uh, things. And, and by the way, there's Julie with the, the mic. She's going to hold them up. So if, if you want to get a question, just get her attention. She'll have Yeah, that. so I mean, the, next, the next piece of the story, um, and we can go from there to Zika or, or anywhere else from there, but the next piece of the story is, of course, um, the, an event that wasn't being prepared for, which was uh, an Ebola epidemic in West Africa, which turned into a global health calamity in 2014. Um, and global health authorities had not been on alert for that. Um, so there were no stockpiles of, Ebo of Ebola vaccine in place. And the World Health Organization was blamed for spending a lot of time um, ignoring the outbreak in, the, in the, se the first several months uh, in 2014 when it was spreading in West Africa. Um, quite the, the reaction was quite different from the reaction to H1N1 had six years beforehand, um, precisely because they hadn't thought that Ebola was going to be the kind of problem that it became. Great. Oh, there we go. It seems to me like there's kind of a conundrum here. I mean, in, in terms of public health, you have to trust the experts. But in, in Katrina, as I recall, the Army Corps of Engineers, when they designed and built the levees, used a Category 4 hurricane as their case, knowing full well that the 100-year storm was a Category 5 earthquake and that saving $75 million on construction costs would ultimately be a disaster. On the other hand, uh, you know, the vaxxers don't trust the experts to our uh, risk. So it seems to me that there needs to be a protocol and a dialogue about uh, and have these choices be made on a more open basis so that people can confirm the assumptions that are made. So, so is expert knowledge, I mean, should we trust expert knowledge? And, and is the public uh, perception, you know, how, how, how does that weigh in as an expert or as a check or as a, or what do you think? You know, just I'll, I'll stick with this case of, of um, the Army Corps of Engineers, just to, 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 take, to take that one. Um, I mean, that's, of course, a case of what I was calling actuarial reasons. So you have risk. Um, and and the, there's an interesting distinction made between risk calculation and risk management. And risk calculation is something that you can kind of leave to the technical experts. Um, what is the probability of a Category 4 or a Category 5 hurricane striking, striking New Orleans based on the historical record? You might be able to make this kind of um, calculation. 
Um, what's called risk management is typically thought of as a more political decision. Um, exactly how much money should we spend on preparedness? Um, should we be preparing for a Category 5 or a Category 4 hurricane? So that's, in a sense, the, the place at which, at least in principle, we need to open up the process, as you say, um, and say, okay, well, yes, we realize that you have some actu actuarial knowledge in the Army Corps of Engineers over how to calculate risk and how, how to construct levies in relationship to that risk, but we want to know what exactly are you preparing for um, and, and, and what kind of political decision are you making when you do that. We've got the next question here, and then I think there's a, one in the back, too. Oh, great. Um, so, in terms of preparedness, uh, you know, we have, we have a lot of different organizations that are trying to prepare in different ways. Uh, uh, earlier I was talking to someone about the Seed Vault up in Slovang. Slovang? Um, Slovang. Small farm. Small farm. Uh, Walmart. Pronunci yeah, pronunciation is always hard. Um, but, uh, but, yeah, so, like, we have things like that. Um, then, then there's this whole concern about economic, economic crises uh, around currencies deflating rapidly or uh, banks collapsing, things like that. And so there's this talk about decentralizing things so that way it's, they become more redundant, more uh, secure. Um, you know, with that thought process, and then kind of what you're talking about, you know, how we have this projection into the future. Um, have you seen? folks uh, uh, in your studies have those thought exercises of, well, how should we be, we be thinking about this uh, instead, you know, as things evolve within our current modern society and kind of stuff? Yeah, one of the major developments that I think relates to what you're talking about is the, what we might call the work on resilience. Um, so, so, so resilience is the idea that you know, we're, we're necessarily going to be susceptible to shocks that are not necessarily predictable, and the task is to make us more um, able to withstand and bounce back from those shocks. And those, that, that's not really incommensurable with the ideas of preparedness, some of the ideas of preparedness that I've, I've talked about, but it, it becomes more sophisticated because it asks, okay, so what is it about social relations, for example, or was it, what is it about financial organizations that might make them more resilient to, to shock? Um, and as you're suggesting, you know, one argument has been that um, distributed, bottom-up kinds of structures are more likely, you know, as, at, at the community level, for example, are more likely to be able to deal with at least certain kinds of disasters than top-down centralized command structures. Um, you, one might think about the example of the, the invention of the internet. Um, as some, most of you probably know, uh, it was funded by DARPA. Um, and and it, the idea was to create a, a communication system that would be resilient against nuclear attack by not having any single single node that could be taken down, and that's why it's a distributed structure of communication that's in in this network form. Um, so, you know, thinking about resilience has been you know part of preparedness since the you know, since the 1950s. Um, but I think that we, you know as we get to thinking more about whether it's disease threats or climate change or financial crisis this discourse of resilience has become more and more significant. So um, as we get our next question from the audience ready, um, there's, there's this, so, so the internet's a great example of something that had one intention and had an amazing use that was completely different. So, so I wonder a bit about, and, and I, I can't help but reflect on all of these Cold War preparations, these extensive preparations, lots of time, energy, money went into to doing these things. They weren't really tested. They weren't really, we don't really have, by and large, an evaluation of how well they work. Um, is there a sense of evaluation and reflection that's happening uh, for, for these systems as they've been built, for these tools, whether they have an actual, like the, some of the disease ones we've talked about, they actually happen, um, or, or if they're just sort of there and are drilled or, or what have you. What's, what's the history of that, and is there progress that's happening there, or is it the, the opposite of <laughs> progress? Yeah, I mean, one of the things I got fascinated with from the outset of this research was the question of how you measure whether, in fact, you're prepared for something that has never occurred and may not ever occur. Um, and this is where I thought that you know, the, the history of these scenario-based exercises is really quite interesting because, in fact, beginning in the early 1950s, the, the federal government used these exercises precisely to try to test itself, to try to figure out, okay, um, you know, if we, if we imagine that the Soviet Union is going to hit us in these places, what's going to happen? Are we ready? Mm -hmm. um, of course, fortunately, we never found out whether, whether we were, right. and the answer would have been no. Right. Um, but it's, it's, it's worth pointing out that the answer, actually, in these exercises is always no. 
um, and it's purposely no. Um, the, you know, part of the point of exercise is to tell you you're not prepared, both to get you a little bit more worried um, and to, in fact, find out the, the sites where you need to intervene. When the, the public health story, which is the story I know most about, is interesting in that after each one of these events, um, SARS, well, less so SARS, but certainly uh, H1N1, Ebola, now Zika, there are systems in place for doing retrospective evaluation of the emergency response that are designed to try to instigate reforms to the institution. So in, in some ways, part of the preparedness evaluation, sorry, part of the preparedness system are these techniques of post hoc assessment. And those seem to be happening and, and beneficial in, in, the, in, in is, is what you're seeing, or? Well, you know, Beneficial will depend on what happens next. I mean, we, we, we don't know, but... but that unknown thing that's going to happen next, yeah. So, so, I mean, you know, just to take the, the, the health example, one of the post hoc recommendations after the Ebola epidemic was that um, World Health Agencies and philanthropic organizations need to be spending more money building public health capacity in poor countries, not for the sake of the health of the people in these poor countries, but for the sake of our health, because if we want to detect and contain one of these novel viruses before it gets to us, we better be able to do it in the place where it happens. Now, you could certainly say that's a good thing in that, in that you know, these are places where there's been, the public health infrastructure has been left to, de to decay, but if you look at what's actually being planned to be put in place, it's a very specific kind of public health infrastructure. It's mm -hmm. going to detect a novel and emerging disease when in fact, Arguably, what's most needed in many of these places is very basic preventive care, yeah. um, treating diarrhea in, in infants. Yeah. Uh, so, so, so you may end up missing the real problem because your focus is going to be on protection of the self. And, and that's one of these examples you're talking about of shaping the future because you've, you've created a detection mechanism or, or a, yeah. a, 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 a capacity that's only for these very specialized things and missed lots of, lots of blind spots to, could, to how yeah. it could be benefit. Okay, is there our next? Sorry. Yeah, great. Can you hear? Yeah. Okay. First, Make sure to hold it close to your. Thank you for a very interesting talk. Um, and like many 20 minute presentations, I have a lot of questions afterwards, <laughs> particularly around your title of how we became, quotes, unprepared. And maybe it's because we're at the long now, but I'm thinking like on a 10,000 year scale, we're pretty, we're more prepared than we've ever been. And I might be missing the humor behind your quotes here. Um, but my, uh, my question is kind of what's the future of preparedness? Is big data going to make us better at being prepared? And I'd love it if you can tie in any anecdotes of being most underprepared, overprepared. Like I think of things like Y2K and stuff like that that had us all, uh, you know, Mayan calendars ending, which I was not concerned about, but other people were. Um, <laughs> So it seems there's a struggle between being most underprepared and overprepared and learning to prepare better. So what's the future? Right. right. Oh, I mean, I, I, since I've been working on this for 10 years, there's been this series of disasters, and they turn out never to be the ones that we were thinking about in advance. Not to say that they won't happen, but, but indeed this problem of fine-tuning preparedness so that it actually deals with the problem that's going to hit turns out to be paradoxically quite difficult. Um, there's also a way in which, so, so on, the, on the other hand, there are events now like anthropogenic climate change for which we, we, we can be pretty confident that those, those catastrophes are heading our way and indeed we can make the argument that we need resilience preparedness measures for it. Um, so that's one feature of preparedness. Vis-a-vis uh, -vis my title, um, yeah, I mean, so, so, so it kind of fits with this, the quotation that came afterwards, which is the kind of, you know, we're overdue and we're underprepared. And that, the idea that, you, you know, we hear this all the time. And, and I completely agree with the point you make. Indeed, we are much more prepared than we were 50 years ago because the very idea that we should become prepared was invented roughly 50 years ago. So I'm interested in that invention. Um, that is what I mean by how we became unprepared. Um, you know, not, not to say that we were once well prepared uh, and now we're less so, but rather, we and you know not everybody, but men, you know experts and authorities in many in many arenas think of us think of ourselves as un, as unprepared, and that's the that's the story I want to tell. Does that help? Yeah. Um, and I think we'll take one more question, but but let me get a couple of quick questions in here about 
So we have the Limb magazine in the back. Tell us something about that, and tell us both about uh, the book that's coming out. This is from your uh, book cover. It's coming out in August, right? And that's about the subject, but it's focused on the health um, preparedness. Mm -hmm. Right, that actually, actually fits into your question. So the title of the book is called, it's, a, it's called Unprepared, Global Health in a Time of Emergency, and this is the, the image on the cover, and, and my friends like to, to tease me that it's, a, it's an oh shit book. Like it's a, <laughs> you know, like, oh, uh-oh, we should be putting on our suits, something nasty is coming down the pike, and of course it's not, because it's basically saying, well, let's step back and ask ourselves why we're saying oh shit. Mm -hmm. um, not to say that we shouldn't be worried, I'm just, <laughs> in any case. Um, so that's the, that's the book that's coming out in August, uh, and then the magazine, which I, there are some copies of. A couple copies, uh, the first um, and third. Uh, yeah, so, so, so you and you're a co-editor. I'm a co-editor of, of, of of I'll call it an academic zine. Um, those of us in you know in, in in the obscure realms of academe sometimes try to think about how we might communicate to to a broader public, and so we we came up with um, this idea of commissioning people that we think have something smart to say about a contemporary problem that we think perhaps is not being well reflected on in the public sphere, that there could be other, that, that, that there are ways of thinking more critically about it. And so we commission people who, whose books usually take 10 years, who know mm. a tremendous amount of something. We say, listen, give us an article that's only 2,000 words, op, roughly op-ed length, a little longer, give it to us in six weeks, we'll publish it, we turn these around very quickly. Um, there have been a number of issues, we're, we're, we're now on our eighth issue, which is called Hacks, Leaks, and Breaches about cybersecurity and you know, contemporary debates around how to deal with, um, you know, with, with leaks. Um, but we've had issues on Sentinel devices, which I talked about today. Um, we had an issue about the Ebola epidemic, um, an issue on systemic risk. Uh, so, so I encourage you to look at, we have a print version and an online version. The, the online version is limn.it. Okay, I'll stop there. Okay. Um, to one last question in the back. And uh, can, we, can we get a couple and then I'll answer both the last two? Uh, uh, I think, no, I think, yeah, I think we'll, uh, well, this will be the last one, but then you're going to stick around, and so sure. we know there are a lot more questions. Okay. So, but, but go ahead. Well, great. Thank you very much. Super interesting. I totally appreciate your system view on this. A uh, couple observations and a couple questions. First is, Preparedness is so difficult to measure compared to response. I mean, response, we can measure response times. We can measure response resources. We could, re we could talk about mean time to repair and things of this nature, but it's difficult to measure preparedness. Um, second, let's not let a good crisis go to waste, right? So, and we have these crises over and over again, so that, that use of after action reviews is a great way to learn and, and turn these into learning opportunities rather than simply response or things. But I would ask you in your work, um, you're riffing off some of the other questions, and that is, we live in California. We live in an all-hazard, all-risk place. I mean, we're sitting literally on landfill right now, right? Like right now, an unreinforced masonry building. But, and we live in earthquakes, and we have all kinds of other things. And so that idea of expert and audience, so would the experts say that as individuals we should be prepared and take up to 72 hours? And so then why don't people do it? Like, like, what does good look like and what does great look like? And I'm wondering if you've seen best practices from anywhere else because it seems like people will take some amount of awareness, they'll get some education and they'll take a little bit of action, but then if we needed to evacuate San Francisco or on a large wildland fire, they happen literally every year, thousands of times a year in, in California. What, how do we get, overcome the human behavior part of this? Um, well, this is where I'm going to sit back and say I'm a cultural anthropologist, and I don't have to <laughs> give you any recommendations. Um, but I just want to accentuate a couple of the points you made and, and, and agree with them. And one of the, you know, from the Cold War on, from civil defense on, um, authorities who, who, who realize that, in fact, you know, for this system to work, we need the public to, to do what it's supposed to do, have been wringing their hands over the difficulty of getting them to do it. And part of it has to do with attention, part of it has to do with multiple possible threats, part of it has to do with a sense that they're so great that individuals don't know what to do. Um, we, and we have this interesting culture now, which we haven't talked about, of you know, the doomsday preppers, people, you know, people in Silicon Valley buying islands in the South Pacific and, or, and so on. Um, so, so there are certain instantiations of particular people who decide they're going to they're gonna do it, but indeed, repeatedly we've found that the, you know, it's very hard to get the public to, 
to, to engage in preparedness. Um, and I think you know, the standard reasons given are that um, the public feels helpless. Um, so one thing to do is, as a risk communication specialist is to, to really explain what they can do. Um, I'll, I'll close with one, one interesting anecdote that, that, that I think somewhat encapsulates this. Um, the field of, of risk communication, I think, is a really interesting one. And it, it developed as part of this whole system that I've been talking about today. And, and um, after, as H1N1 was, that this is swine flu back in 2008, was beginning to, to spread, or 2009, I guess, um, to spread uh, around the country, um, it, it was clear that you know, there wasn't a lot that people could do yet. Vaccines weren't available, um, but public health officials were, were told to get up and, and tell people things to do. Wash your hands a lot. Um, probably if, if H1N1 had been really deadly, washing your hands a lot wasn't gonna help. But there was a sense that you, you know, the public needs to have a, have a role uh, in, order to take, in order to trust and take seriously the, the arguments being made by officials. Um, so, so this field of risk communication has been thinking precisely about that. All right, well, we have to uh, end it there, but so a big round of applause for Andy. Thank you. If you enjoyed this talk, we hope you'll subscribe to hear more. You might also like Long Now's other podcast, Seminars About Long-Term Thinking, with more than 200 more long-term thinking lectures hosted by Stuart Brand. Subscribe to both at longnow.org slash podcast or wherever you like to listen.